0: doing oh you know i'm all right i'm all right i'm gonna talk about masculinities and men's clothes so i'm excited this I'm, evening. I'm very excited about this one this is a good one it is a good one i feel like we've been building up to this one we should have probably done it on a better number than 70
1: but... <laughs> we should have done it on 69 because it is a bit sexy yeah. nice
0: yeah the nice number but we forgot that that we were doing number 69 <laughs> But yeah, so this is History is Sexy. I'm Emma Southern. You're Janina Mathewson. That is correct. Yeah, we're here to answer the history questions that you can't be bothered to look for yourself or which are too complicated and Google won't give you a good answer. And this week we are talking about the great masculine renunciation. And the question came from Liz Clancy, who said, Why did men's clothes get so boring?
1: (laughs) This is ha- how I've been thinking about it. How I've conceptualized the Great Male Renunciation in my own head is when you say the phrase to me, Regency England. There are two pieces of culture that I think of. One is Blackadder the Third, and the other <laughs> is the collected works of Jane Austen. And I think. Uh huh. It's a good demonstration of what's happening because you have like the Prince Regent and Black Blackadder Third, which is obviously really anachronistic in lots of ways. But he's there in his powdered wigs and his brocade jackets and all of that. And then you have all of Jane Austen, where the men are wearing black and yep. no adornment, and and military else. uniforms. Yeah,
0: yes. And whereas Prinny has his enormous trousers,
1: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> which is always extremely funny to me, just because they're normal trousers. <laughs> And the more that they called them simply enormous trousers, the funnier it got that they were not that massive. And I can never tell whether it was a genuine, like, they genuinely thought that they were holding a pair of enormous trousers. (laughs) Yeah. Or whether it was part of the joke was that they were normal trousers. (laughs) But anyway, we'll get to the Regency period Mm -hmm. and George forced enormous trousers, but (laughs) First, we have to start with where the concept of the great male renunciation comes from. I have to say I was surprised (laughs) (laughs) about about its origin. The term and concept of the great male renunciation comes from a book called The Psychology of Clothes, written by a man called John Carl Flugel in 1929. (laughs) He was a Freudian. Always going
1: to be a good time when we have to bring in a Freudian.
0: It's always a great time when we have to bring in Freud. He was a very, very popular in the 1920s and 30s psychologist and kind of one of the first pop psychologists Mm -hmm. who managed to blend having a kind of research and teaching career at UCL with writing for the public and wrote a bunch of books. He also loved joining societies (laughs) and his entry in the national dictionary of biography is just a list of societies that he either joined or started including the society for psychical research and the ucl council for psychical investigation Mm -hmm. which is ghosties great this guy sounds great he loves freud he loves ghosts Mm -hmm. and he loves psychoanalysis amazing and he wrote this book called the psychology of clothes which is one of those books where a man sits down and writes their big thoughts down and then says and that's true (laughs) based on my observations of just looking at some women in oxford and london here's my thoughts on clothing And the Great male Renunciation comes in a chapter called Sex Differences, which is just over halfway through, about two-thirds through. Before we get to sex differences, there is a big old section on types of people based on their clothes. Mm-hmm. Which I'm gonna tell you about just because it's really, really funny. This is an entire chapter. There's ten types of person. Okay, of course, naturally. Based on their response to clothes. The ten genders. Yeah, the ten genders. So you can decide where you fit. Mm-hmm. One, the rebellious type, who feels restricted in clothes and struggles against them and wants to be naked all the time. (laughs) (laughs) I mean... So all two-year-olds. I do like being comfortable. Yeah. There's the resigned types, who hates clothes but doesn't struggle against them. Mm -hmm. Hates wearing them but doesn't take them off all the time. Okay. There's the unemotional type, who is incapable of being pleased or annoyed by clothes or nakedness. (laughs) (laughs)
1: just no emotions at all about it
0: no feelings at all about it just absolutely no interest there's the prudish type who uses clothes entirely to cover their nakedness Uh there's the duty type who wears clothes as a way to prevent softness or self-indulgence okay so you're here in sackcloth wearers yes there's the protected type who. Prioritise warmness and are always warmly dressed.
1: <laughs> I think that's me. Yeah, I can relate to that.
0: There's the supported type who feel pleasurably supported by tight or stiff clothes. Uh-huh. Getting into kink territory now. <laughs> Number nine is the sublimated type who are able to fuse clothes and the body into a harmonious union. That's how- I don't know what that means. That doesn't mean anything. he means they're happy in clothes and then my personal favorite just because i really like the way he describes them is the self-satisfied type who are irritatingly (laughs) smug about clothes
1: (laughs) that's the type i aspire to be but my clothes (laughs) are never good enough to justify it
0: yeah so that's that's the kind of thing we're dealing with in the book amazing which it is that kind of thing. That's a whole chapter, and then we get the chapter on sex differences, mm-hmm. where he aims to explain why. And this is a quote: "Among ourselves, at the present moment, the female sex is far more decorative than the male, while of savages, in the main, the opposite is true."
1: Huh. Yep. Just throwing all around um, words like "savages."
0: It's great. A great sign. Yes. A lot of that. He but very much believes in like social evolution and cultural evolution and the idea that like tribal societies and tribal and cultures in other parts of the world that don't like wear collars basically or are not Englishmen mm-hmm. are like not as evolved and therefore are given insight into what humans used to be
1: like, yeah, because he's great. Yeah. Uh- <laughs> He's looked at so many people so he knows so many facts about them.
0: Yeah. Basically wants to explain why women get nice clothes, like why women get to wear decoration and jewelry and and embroidery and things and men get stuck wearing suits, which at the time is like 1930s like we're still in starched collars and things like that. Yeah. He considers women to be sartorially emancipated, which is something that we're going to come back to. Hmm. Yeah, this this I
1: mean, there's a lot going on there.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and he also goes on and on for several pages about the introduction of the low neckline, which he considers to be a weapon (laughs) that women wield (laughs) because women are able to wield the double weapon of exposure and decoration.
1: The double weapon of two boobs.
0: Yes, And that this is particularly dangerous because women cannot sublimate their exhibitionism and so they wear low necklines because clothing will never be enough exhibitionism for women naturally in their women brains. Mm -hmm. Sure, sure. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally true. So this is a problem that he's wrestling with. How come ladies get to have low necklines and fancy clothes (laughs) and I don't? Uh Why are they so emancipated? There is a powerful undercurrent of jealousy (laughs) in everything we're going to talk about until, like, when we're talking about Flugel and his gang. His basic argument is that Women have gained a great victory in the adoption of the principle of erotic exposure, but men suffered a great defeat in the reduction of male sartorial decorativeness because men have abandoned the claim to be considered beautiful and henceforth have aimed at being only
1: useful. (laughs) Yeah, dumb men. Yes.
0: He has a series of causes that he thinks underlie this. The first is the French Revolution. Mm -hmm. He thinks that... Prior to the French Revolution in Europe, he's only interested in Europe, there was decorative kind of dressing for men and women, emphasised rank and distinction and membership to the aristocracy, basically. It was available to you if you were very rich, which is also something we'll come back to. But basically it was wearing ridiculous clothes with giant sleeves or massive trousers or things covered in embroidery. Yeah, dainty wee shoes with heels and all of that. Yes, yeah. Was a way of demonstrating your membership to an aristocratic rank mm-hmm. or to a non-productive rank
1: that you didn't have to work and you had lots of money, which is an interesting point I think that comes up a lot when you look back at European history of when that is what the people want, like the idea that the monarch is special, they're anointed by God and the and the ruling classes that like there are times when it's comforting to believe that they're so separated from everyone else and that's why they are chosen to rule but then there are times when that becomes a symbol of they're being alienated from the people and not understanding them and that's why we you know behead charles the first because that wealth and exhibitionism suddenly becomes a mark of lack of understanding and lack of ability to rule because you are so separated you know Or more importantly
0: during the French Revolution it becomes actively dangerous to be a member of the yeah. (laughs) You will get get put
1: in a guillotine for looking too fancy.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And Flugel says literally that the emergence of Enlightenment ideals such as liberty, equality and fraternity Mm -hmm. undermined the aristocracy, stopped them from wearing nice clothes because it became unfashionable to be To be an aristocrat, that it became actively not just dangerous as it was at the time in France, but the thinking that you were above other people became morally and socially very unfashionable, Mm -hmm. which like the doctrine of equality amongst all men, and all men are created equal, which is after the French Revolution, then you get the American Revolution, and you get this kind of, you know, those Enlightenment ideals rolling around the world, is incompatible with the idea that some people are inherently better than others, and therefore some people can wear a nice gold cloak and other people can't. Yeah, And the new social order of the 18th century... Demands that people dress uniformly. This is all Fugel's arguments. Mm -hmm. I want to make it clear that he thinks these things are all very bad. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He
1: (laughs) hates the idea that everyone is equal. If if the cost of democracy is that men don't get to wear pretty coats anymore, then it's just too high a price to pay. It's just too high a price to
0: pay, because now nobody gets to wear a fancy robe unless they're being crowned in Westminster Abbey. And then, even worse, as far as he's concerned, uh, the idea of work became respectable and the idea of being idle and an idle consumer rather than a producer became very unfashionable and degrading Mm -hmm. to not be producing. This, actually, I think is probably his best argument. He thinks it's very, very bad and I think it's bad for completely different reasons. (laughs) But the idea that commercial and industrial ideals and the idea of being a contributor to the economy being the only way that you can be worth something yeah kind of takes over everything until you have to dress in such a way that you are presenting yourself as being useful to the economy even if you're not which is why kings now wear suits he thinks all of this is terrible and thinks that men suffered from this more because men contribute to the world and women don't. (laughs) Famously. That men are more sociable in general, so women don't feel the effects of social changes because they're just not as sociable. Right, yeah, yeah, Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And my personal favourite is that, and he has a footnote on this uh, and the footnote is to freud women are perhaps by nature and certainly in virtue of our society and sexual traditions just more narcissistic than men (laughs) and so they're less swayed by the desire of society to demonstrate that you are a useful person because they're
1: their inherent narcissism we're okay with looking useless and that's why we get to have nice things
0: Yes, mm-hmm. and he, for this reason, also thinks that women entering the workforce, which they are starting to do after World War One, and you know they get suffrage and universal suffrage in 1928, and you get women are able to join professions in 1919, and he thinks this is appalling and a great danger to women who might also start to dress boringly. <laughs> but that more is the importantly, the one great danger
1: of making women work is that they won't look pretty anymore.
0: No, there is a second danger, Janina. And the second danger is that women who work hate sex.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. It causes them great psychological difficulties to work because it prevents normal, there's a quote, normal women from enjoying sex. Yeah.
1: Famously, when you do a day's labour, your vagina just shuts down.
0: Yeah. He yeah. Um, has an extensive footnote of evidence for this which refers exclusively to a play written by a man about Florence Nightingale imagining how Florence Nightingale felt about sex.
1: <laughs> I wish I could, like, say that that is, uh, demonstrates that he was uniquely a dipshit, but we still do this, right? Like, people use Lord of the Flies yeah. to demonstrate that we're wild in our natures. Like, this yeah. is, you need to learn what fiction is. Yep.
0: Yeah. So, that is where the concept of the great male renunciation comes from. The idea that basically a combination of kind of capitalism and enlightenment ideals and the industrial revolution kind of flattened social class essentially and eliminated the aristocracy, mm-hmm. which again, Frugal thinks is terrible. This he has published as part of his membership to the Men's Dress Reform Party, who are a fringe activist group who began life in the 1920s as a subcommittee of a thing called the New Health Society, Mm -hmm. started by a man with the wonderful name of Sir Arbuthnot Lane.
1: (laughs) A normal man with a normal name.
0: Yes. He is like the early 20th century version of Gillian McKeith, if you remember her. I don't. Is this a British thing? This is a British thing. Possibly she was, before your time, enjoying the wonders of Channel 4. But she had a television programme where she would make people who she thought were unhealthy or overweight poo in a box. What? (laughs) And then she would examine their poo and diagnose their health issues based on this. She claimed to be a doctor but she got her PhD from a mail order site and her thesis was based on the idea that you can drink or eat chlorophyll and it will photosynthesize inside your gut.
1: (laughs) Oh wow. That's yeah I don't like oh I I've got nothing. I've got nothing. Jesus Christ. This is
0: a very popular program on Channel 4 for quite some time. (laughs) It was called You Are What You Eat and it was just massive in like the early 2000s. But yeah, so he has very not dissimilar ideas to her. He was a surgeon who did good surgeon work (laughs) until he came to the idea from his work on colons that you needed to... To have have a bowel movement at least three times a day, because otherwise, if you were building up toxins inside of yourself, which cause diseases, and he believed he started promoting
1: a diet that was just a hundred percent fiber.
0: <laughs> yeah, which would cure all known diseases, basically by making you just poo all the time. Great, cool. So, three times a day minimum. But he was basically when people were like, this doesn't sound right. <laughs> he like <laughs> stormed off out of the British Medical Association and started the New Health Society. Okay. To promote his ideas. Sure. Yeah. Normal. A subcommittee of that um, was the clothing subcommittee, which was designed to investigate and promote healthful clothing for men. Right. And this became the Men's Dress Reform Party. What was the reform they were going for? So they believed that the wearing of suits and collars and stays in dark colours was extremely bad for men's health, both psychologically, because they believed it was very depressing and bad for their mental health, but also suffocating, caused fainting and clogged this is very Garth clogged their pores <laughs> which caused toxins to build up in their skin, which caused cancer. So they
1: wanted them to be able to dress in nice pinks and greens and yellows. Yes. Yeah, so what they specifically advocated was the wearing of loose blouses
0: with Byron collars Oh, these guys would have fucking loved Harry Styles. Yes. They didn't like trousers. They thought the trousers were very bad for you. And so they really advocated for the wearing of shorts with sandals and kilts, if possible.
1: Uh, You know what? I think these guys were all right. (laughs) I've come around on them.
0: Yeah, they did not like the idea of... They basically wanted the wearing of like
1: 1920s athletic clothing, so sort of soft things. They wanted everyone to look like they were in Brideshead Revisited. Like, just a lot lot of floaty linen, you know.
0: But what they are largely describing is wearing floaty blouses and skirts, which Flugel does go into, but we won't talk about it because it's a whole other conversation. But (laughs) they strongly believe that wearing suits all the time is bad for you and that they wanted to be wearing nice floaty clothes that would allow the kind of air to circulate and would make everybody feel comfortable and happy. Yeah. Which is kind of fine, except that their reasoning was low-key bonkers. I say low-key. They believed, and this is one of these things where you're like, oh, this is... I agree with you on this point, but not for the reason.
1: Yeah, um, your working is all wrong, but your answers are correct.
0: Yeah, so they believed that men were oppressed by the discipline of capitalist labour. And I read this page and was like... Maybe I'm on this side, these guys side, like they've got floaty blouses, they've got anti-capitalism. Mm-hmm. No, uh, <laughs> they uh, they're oppressed uh, the rise of the working classes in esteem has oppressed professional and aristocratic men.
1: Right. Sure. OK, <laughs> that does take a turn.
0: Yeah, men of the uh, gentlemanly classes are now indistinguishable from the businessmen, and any old miner can put on a good suit and be taken for a gentleman.
1: So they want clo- They want sartorial emancipation for poshos. Yes,
0: right. They are actively and are positively elitist in that they believe that some people just are better than others, and some people should be allowed to wear nice dresses. <laughs> And other people shouldn't. They want to very much bring back an idea of masculinity which is based on class and profession and not on clothing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or which is not on kind of professional clothing. They also are very, very threatened by the fact that women have gotten above their station and women are now wearing trousers. How dare we? Yes. And the way that they talk in all of their literature is they use the exact same language that suffragettes were using just a couple of decades previously. They use the language of emancipation and being suffocated by their clothes and fainting. It's like a lot of language that you would read in stuff like about you know how women in like the end of the 19th century would write about corsets mm-hmm. or big skirts restricting movement and their ability to move around um, and that they are being imprisoned in their clothes and by society in order to stop them from reaching their full potential except it's men who are psychologists and doctors
1: yeah sure those poor those poor <laughs> men
0: yeah so even by their own like peers they were seen as cranks who had odd, odd, odd ideas about health um, and about clothing. And they're also very closely associated with a thing called the Sunlight Society, who believed that sunlight could cure all disease. mm
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: And that covering up yourself with suits was very bad for you and that they offered... And in retrospect, knowing what we now know about skin cancer, it's this, like horrifying but they offered like uv
1: therapies where uh, you could yeah. just go and kind of stand in front of a big old uv light for ages yeah i think there's there's like a um there's a strain of this that they talked about on maintenance phase this is what i think ended up with perineum sunning where you just like yes it point is your, exact point same your butt up at the sun and it will cure you yeah
0: so so yeah so that is where the idea of the great male renunciation comes from and you would think that that would kind of drift off into nowhere because it's obviously like woo-woo people on the fringes of certain professions. But Flugel was incredibly influential in his time and the psychology of clothes was pretty much the only book that had been written on this subject and he wrote a bunch of other things about masculinities and the Oedipus complex and he was like a celebrity Mm -hmm. in his time to an extent and so that idea has become absolutely kind of fixed in fashion history as the this idea that the French Revolution, or not even his, the idea, his kind of causes for it, but just the concept of the great male renunciation has become stuck in the way that people talk because it clearly is something that happened that at some point men stopped wearing. And I have to say at this point, I'm pretty much talking about aristocratic men yeah. because what they're really talking about is men of the highest possible classes. Because when you're talking about people wearing ostentatious clothes or wearing decorative clothes or beautiful clothes, you are not talking, before there is a middle class, you are not talking about, like, Joe Bloggs down the street or me or you. You're talking about kings and courtiers and aristocracies who can afford to engage in intense luxury and in, like, beauty at a time when everything is handmade and everything is made you know, by teams of people. It's not, you can't just go into a shop and purchase these things. Everything is custom made for every person who is wearing them. Yeah,
1: it's a real signal of everything is custom made. So if you have money, you can go to a tailor or a modiste. And if you don't have money, you make it yourself. And if you can't afford to do even that, then you have to wear clothes that were made for someone else. And everyone can tell because it doesn't fit you properly because... All clothing was tailored. Yeah. And
0: so most people in history were not wearing beautiful things, just as most people now are not wearing beautiful things. But so when we're talking about what actually happened to make men basically be wearing tuxedos and business suits for the rest of their lives Mm -hmm. is a complicated several hundred year process which starts exactly... On the 7th of October 1666, <laughs> and involves a lot of complicated issues involving class and concepts of masculinity and religion. But it begins on the 7th of October 1666, the day that Charles II invented the waistcoat.
1: What a guy! <laughs> the only king. Yeah. The only king ever.
0: The best king. <laughs> The most magnificent hair, the best
1: dogs, the most illegitimate children. (laughs) The guy who made England fun again.
0: The guy who made England fun again. It's weird, I was thinking about this earlier because my two favourite kings are the guy who made England fun again, Charlie T. Mm -hmm. And William IV, a man who never had any fun at all.
1: (laughs) Just a miserable time all the time.
0: Yeah, who considered his entire life to be just waiting to die so that Victoria could become queen. <laughs> <laughs> and hoping that she was old enough. Like, basically just hanging on until she was old enough to be queen. That was it. But, but yeah, Charlie 2 has come back to the throne and samuel Pepys is in his court and on october the 7th samuel Pepys says that charles had decreed that he had invented this new thing called the vest mm-hmm. and that he would be wearing it all the time to teach the nobility thrift <laughs> and
1: we thank him because a three-piece suit is a very sexy suit it is a very sexy suit
0: everybody made fun of him for it at first and thought it was ridiculous but he insisted upon wearing it and then if the this is a time still at 1666 when if the king is wearing something then everybody is wearing the thing Mm -hmm. because he is the guy and you don't want to be going around upsetting him yeah so very quickly the vest and the kind of the three-piece suit took off as the thing so no more kind of doublets and cloaks and things like that, but the vest and eventually trousers. That is basically the style in various different types that has then continued on until now. It has changed in form, Mm -hmm. like collars change, trousers change, like in terms of the shapes and things, but in general, that is (laughs) the invention of the three-piece suit right there. And the reason that this has... This took hold is because Charles was, and this sounds ridiculous because it's big old Charlie too, party animal shagger of women, kind of trying to make his court and make the nobility be more thrifty and spartan and plain. Mm -hmm. and was attempting to introduce and very successfully introduced an ideal of masculinity and of behaviour which was modest and plain and anti-consumption and anti-frivolity. I don't know that he necessarily invested in all of those things due to his magnificent wigs, but (laughs) that is what he ended up doing. (laughs) And it basically is a kind of combination of reformation and these ideals. The fact that Charles I had been executed for being too much of a divine right of king's prick. Mm -hmm. And these ideas of equality that are starting to kind of seep into the culture flitter around yes and the idea that you shouldn't be as men spending all of your money on things that look nice (laughs) that that over a couple of hundred years or not even a couple of hundred years by like the end of that century and then into the 18th century fashion has Become, well, this idea that not fashion, but masculinity has become something that is associated with simplicity, modesty, and sobriety. Mm. And when those are things you want to project, you don't wear beautiful, expensive, hand embroidered.
1: Golden things. Brocades and velvets and all those sorts Mm -hmm. of nonsense fabrics.
0: Exactly. And then following on from that, you start to get these ideas that effeminacy and luxury are vices that savages engage in and civilized people do not engage in luxury. Civilized people only engage in utility. Mm. And then you get the Glorious Revolution very soon after... Charlie so James II is chased away and so (laughs) 1619 is you get the glorious revolution Mm -hmm. obviously when we celebrate every year here in Northern Ireland should you ever wish to see a bonfire that is the size of a block of flats (laughs) I do I mean come in July (laughs) which basically is when James II was overthrown by his own parliament and the throne was handed to William and Mary, the Duke of Orange, and his wife. And it expelled this political culture whereby the king was above everybody else and now the king could be replaced by Mm. parliament. And it institutes a new regime which really embraces these ideas of modesty and a masculinity which is simple yeah. rather than luxurious. And the court kind of follows along. And this is not, you know, entirely a linear process. It's not like every generation is less um is entirely less ridiculous than its last. But it is a kind of general principle that as philosophies of kind of universalization and equality mm-hmm. and Protestant ethics and the industrial revolution really take hold throughout the 17th and then into the 18th century men's fashion becomes more obsessed with not consuming but producing and becomes more and more obsessed with this idea these ideas of utility and self-respect self-help application and industry Mm. So the book that I I found that was most useful for this, incidentally, was one by a guy called David Kutchka, which is called The Three Piece Suit and Modern Masculinity in England, 1550 to 1850. And Tim Edwards' Men in the Mirror as well were like super useful in showing since essentially 1666, the process amongst the upper classes was to was away from men being consumers and. The idea that you, if you don't work, then that means you're better than everybody else. And mm. if you are able to have the means to spend on beautiful things and lovely fancy shoes, and like you know, having fancy shoes with a 17 inch point demonstrates that you don't have to work, yeah. and therefore, but now as time goes by and as the industrial revolution takes hold, and as like you know, Protestant ethics take hold and these ideas of equality take hold the idea of a bunch of ninnies walking around with massive shoes and enormous hats as men begins to look more and more with each passing generation like they are big old ninnies in ridiculous (laughs) shoes who are a waste of time and energy (laughs) and people start to wonder what the point of them is. And as the middle class emerges and professions take hold and people become businessmen mm. and the businessman becomes the big name in society, then aristocrats start wanting to look like businessmen rather than businessmen wanting to look like aristocrats. And that this is a story essentially of the decline of the aristocracy, which is a good thing.
1: Yeah, it's in my mind. It's, it's a shame they took fun fun clothes with them, but it is a good thing. They did. I found
0: this really fun I will put this in the show notes Which are always on our website At historyofsexy.com In case anybody wants to A few years ago in 2018 There was a exhibition At the LA County Museum of Art And now bits of it are permanent But you can see them on Google And like one of the rooms that it has It's called "Reigning Men Fashion in Menswear And you, one of the rooms is like The evolution of the suit So from the 17th century through to now mm not necessarily in order but you can see how basically the clothing has stayed the same <laughs> <laughs> like in sh- the shape changes but the the you know the basic is there pretty much throughout and it gradually changes into being more and more civilian and more and more utilitarian
1: and then you get Beau Brummel Beau Brummel is is fun. And this this is also reaching a point in history which is fun because there's kind of coincidental stuff going on in the UK in in England specifically and but also in the US which is I find kind of interesting because you have Bo Brummel, who comes along, and he is the son of a, a sweet shop owner who then worked in politics for a while. And he goes into the army, and he comes back, and he just becomes. I was listening to uh, an episode of Articles of Interest about this um, about suits specifically, but they described Bo Brummel as the first influencer. Yeah, because he didn't have anything going on. He didn't have as much money as as anyone else. Like he was he was from a middle class upbringing but he just from like a grosser family yeah he just became like the fashion icon regency england well not quite regency england because by the time the regency (laughs) began he'd already he'd already had to run away to france but um if anything the regency is real bad for him (laughs) He ends up dying in a dentist prison of syphilis because of the regency period. <laughs> Be-
0: <laughs> also because he's very, very rude to
1: Prince George. Yes, because they'd been friends and like Prince George, when he was just the Prince of Wales, really looked up to Beau Brummel and tried to ape his style a lot. But once he became the regent, he was a little bit fancy. He cut people. He started cutting people at parties. He had been friends with loads of wigs who um, famously don't love the monarchy. And then Mm -hmm. when he became regent, he dropped a lot of people and he cut Beau Brunel at a party and Beau Brunel just said to someone, oh, who's your fat friend? And... Mm -hmm. Then he had to run away to France. (laughs) And that was the end of his career as an influencer. But he had come along and brought sort of army style into high society in London. So he wore, instead of like pantaloons and breeches, he wore trousers that went all the way down and that were so tight, they had to be put on by a valet and that were brown. So he looked naked and he wore intricately tied cravats. There's a whole list of the different ways you could tie a cravat, But then in sober colours and and the idea of of being precisely refined in -hmm. this, scare quotes, unpretentious way, he spent five hours a day getting ready so that that he could look like it had all just fallen onto his body. He invented spending four hours trying to get bedhead just right. Yeah. Which is amazing. But it was also all steeped in money, right? Like one of the markers of being a gentleman that Beau Brummel sort of Profligated in Regency England was that you were supposed to be wearing snow white linen like your shirts were supposed to be snow white mm-hmm. and if you were in London for the season that meant you couldn't launder your shirts in London because it was too smoggy and they'd go grey so you had to send them to your country estate to be laundered and then have them brought back to you so you could wear them in London because that was the style which blows my mind yep. I love it so much these <laughs> fucking idiots <laughs>
0: It's one of those, that, like this is what's like the opposite of conspicuous consumption. It's this inconspicuous consumption, which is that you're spending loads and loads and loads of money to look plain. Yeah,
1: and it's one of the things that I think, not that, not that women aren't given praise when they make things look effortless, but I think women don't get blasted for looking like they tried in the same way yeah. that men do. And I think that this is when that started, which is really interesting because everyone was really trying really, really hard. And... You had men who were having their boots polished with champagne, and it was uh, where you got your coat, you know, who, who you had make your coat was very important. It was a signifier of whether or not you had good taste. But all the details were really fight like you had to be kind of a connoisseur of fashion to know who was doing it well and who was doing it badly because it was all in these tiny details because everything was really uniform and that's something that as well has lasted to today like a a plain suit might have these tiny little flares that show that it's like Armani or whatever but no one can tell unless they really know suits because To the naked eye, they all look
0: the same. Which is how you get that guy on Twitter whose thing right now is basically destroying like right wing lunatics and people who currently have blue Mm ticks, who are portraying themselves as being kind of rich and successful. But this guy is a tailor and he does multi kind of tweet threads mm-hmm. looking at the very, very fine, un- like unnoticeable details between a good suit and a great suit or a bad suit and a good suit. Mm-hmm. And- and, like, the way that a suit, how you can tell between a suit that is off the shelf, a suit that is off the shelf but has been tailored, and a suit that is bespoke to you. And, you know, how if someone who knows this information can tell that a, a suit has been you know made specifically for a person or whether you how you can tell the difference between a cheap black suit and a and a very expensive black suit by basically the way the, like lines go mm-hmm. when you look at them and how lapels lay and just really specific details which are a really interesting way of using these guys like pretensions against themselves because <laughs> <laughs> you can pull them apart while at the same time completely reinforcing them. Yeah. Because uh, <laughs> it's really interesting. Much as I think the I find Bo Brummel fascinating because he's such a paradox in that he's like considered to be the ultimate dandy, like the original dandy, yeah. and everybody around him makes fun of him and like you know like oh he's he spends five hours a day putting his clothes on and he does nothing and he just spends and did da, da, da and he is kind of considered by people outside of his immediate circle to be effeminate and ludicrous, but at the same time, everybody emulates him. Yeah, yeah. And he has, by being as dandy-ish as that time could be, basically, yeah. you know, he uh, he's as close to wearing as powdered wig as you can get, but... But the effect is to look simple and restrained. Yeah, and he introduces a style of dressing which where everybody looks the same yeah.
1: <laughs> what's,
0: um... and his whole thing is to be elegant is to not be noticed mm. and it, by being as noticeably perfect as possible and he really kind of popularises this idea that men wear dark grey suits all the time except sometimes when they get to wear a
1: black one Yeah. What is, um, what's happening at the same time in the US which I find really fascinating it feels kind of coincidental but interlinked is that you have, at this point in history, America isn't producing any of its own cloth. It's producing the cotton plants, but those are then sent to England where they are refined into fabric and then that's Mm. exported back to the US. And then during the War of 1812, there was basically trade embargoes, so all of this cloth was coming over from England to New York and not getting through customs because... They were at war. And then at the end of the right. war, the British dumped all of this surplus fabric that had been building up just in the harbour. Presumably, I don't think anyone knows for sure, but presumably because it, like it was a sort of spiteful attempt to just slow down trade into, into New York by having uh-huh. the harbour clogged with all this fabric. But what happens is a bunch of people retrieve it, including a guy called Henry Brooks, who has it cut into suits, and then sent to women to sew together, mostly in their homes, and pieces them together into ready-to-wear suits, essentially, the first time this has happened, for people who can't afford to go to a tailor and have a bespoke suit, which at this point in time uh-huh. is the only way you can get one. So he starts what is now a 200-year-old company called Brooks Brothers, and it becomes sort of the symbol of the American Democratic project because it means that everyone can dress well, everyone looks Mm -hmm. can go into a shop and buy a suit and and look like they're on the same level, which is what was the aim of the democratic experiment at that point in time. Not so much anymore, but it became this normal thing that anyone could buy a suit. And since Brooks Brothers was established, every single US president, except for two, have worn a Brooks Brothers suit because it's the suit of the ordinary American man. And the idea is that you wear one to show that you are just... You're an ordinary an guy. An ordinary guy. The two who haven't were Jimmy Carter, who was like, I'm just a poor old farmer. I'm I'm not fancy <laughs> enough to wear suits. And Ronald Reagan, who was like, I'm a movie star. This isn't good enough for me, <laughs> which I find extremely yeah. funny. But yeah, and that was the, so it became this uniform of democracy and uh, also a, yeah. a, a, and I don't know if this interpretation comes solely from, from, flute, from our friend Flugel, but it relieved men from having to think about clothes because the suit companies were keeping up with it for them so they could, whatever was fashionable would be what was in the shops so they could offset the yeah. the need to consider their own style because it was being done for them. Yeah, and this is the other thing that kind of
0: democratizes clothing to a certain extent which is the rise of mass consumption and consumer culture through the 19th century and things like the opening of department stores Mm -hmm. and picture advertising because you get newspapers that can be printed and and spread around and that creates a consumer
1: and says to men you can buy things this is what (laughs) turns shopping into an activity essentially Yeah, Mm -hmm.
0: I did read a really interesting article about the creation of the consumer culture for men, which was about how merchants and like department stores and people who are making things and factory owners throughout the Victorian age basically had to fight against the idea that only women did shopping and only women bought things Mm. and to create a male consumer, partly by creating anxiety in men about their bodies and doing things like telling them that, you know, the people wouldn't like it if they could see their bellies, people wouldn't like it if they could see their knees, that mm. kind of thing. But also by creating a kind of demonised idea of the female consumer who buys frivolously and can't control herself and browses and yeah. buys things for just for fun compared to the good male consumer who buys things usefully and buys a suit for himself yeah. and takes control of his destiny by buying his own personal corset <laughs> to deal with the anxiety he now has about his belly uh, or his knees or whatever. But, but creates so it basically says if you let women do all the shopping, then they'll buy you ridiculous things, so you have to come and buy your own suits. Mm. Which then, once you've created a male consumer, they can't go backwards essentially. <laughs> but that creates, you know, this mass consumption idea that you can go and buy whatever it is that you need. But now, no, again, 99% of people can only have to buy the things that they wear. We don't have the, either the skills or the time or the resources to make our own clothes or have our own clothes made for us. Yeah. So
1: you end up having to buy what is available. Yeah. And it also, I think, is a part of. I don't know, something that's damaging to the collective psyche is constantly having to buy clothes that are made to fit a broad range of bodies, but not your specific mm. body. I remember seeing a comment somewhere about uh, those awful, one of those awful makeover shows from like the early 2000s where, you know, Trini and Susanna or someone would tell you everything that was wrong with yes. your body and then tell you how to hide it. <laughs> I saw a post once about yes. someone who was talking about their friend that went on one of those shows. I don't think it was actually... They weren't talking about Trinity and Susanna, but basically the same sort of thing. And what they never show you on the TV show that they would make over this person. Here's how you make your body look amazing in clothes by shopping correctly for Mm -hmm. your style. And what they don't tell the audience is that they are also getting every single piece, even t-shirts, tailored. Like everything is being adjusted to fit them. And no one knows that. So then you go shopping, trying to find the things that will fit your body type. And it still doesn't work because it's not meant to. It's not made to. It's made to sort of basically be okay-ish on a broad range of people but not not perfect on anyone
0: yes i have to say that when i found i live very close to a like tailoring shop and the amount of clothes i take in to be taken up taken in take like let out changed Mm -hmm. like uh, and it's if you can do it then it is genuinely so much nicer (laughs) To have clothes that fit. Yeah. Like, and to, like, I have a pair of dungarees which I like, but, and which fit perfectly when they're on, but a real pain to get on because they've got no stretch in mm. them. And to get them over my hips is a really difficult. So I, I'm just going to get a zipper in them. Yeah. And then they're going to be fine. And I have a pair of trousers I got from UC and Yak, which I really like, but which were too wide legged for me. It made me feel like I was, actually, made me feel like I was a 1930s man doing some, like, holidaying. <laughs> Which is not a feeling that I enjoyed. So I went and had them like tapered so that they were nicer and it like it's annoying and you kind of have to budget it in. Yeah. But if you can do it for clothes, it's so nice. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so the basically the story is men's clothes got boring Partly because the aristocracy died, and that is good. And partly because of ideals of equality and and nice things, but also partly because of capitalism. Yeah. And because it became ingrained in men that in order to look respectable, in order to look masculine, in order to look like they are men functioning properly in society as men, they had to look boring. Yeah. And they had to look useful and they had to look like they didn't care and the backlash against men who look like they care whether it be like the late 90s metrosexual situation or like i read this article about beau brummel that was in esquire a few years ago in 2019 which was a response to billy porter's tuxedo dress
1: what a what a great look
0: Yeah, and basically that is what Alexandra Rowland was saying, which is that was great. Look, the article incidentally is titled "Bo Brummel wasn't a hero with men's fashion; he was a villain, a boring, uptight villain." Yeah,
1: Uh, (laughs) and um, he was doing he was doing the worst of both sides. He was taking everything way too seriously and spending way too long and thinking about it way too much, but also making it look really boring.
0: Yeah, and they said that, like when they tweeted that, basically. They, this is based on a tweet that they did about Bro Brummel ruining everything for everyone because he made everybody look boring. And then the comments on the piece kind of back this up as well. But basically, they said that the backlash that they got was from men mm-hmm. who felt violently attacked by her, uh, by them saying that suits are boring <laughs> and you don't have to wear them and the ideal situation is that everyone can wear whatever they want and wearing a tuxedo dress is amazing and wouldn't it be brilliant if we could all wear whatever we wanted all the time and you didn't feel trapped in this and men a certain type of men were so attacked by it and like felt really um, like attacked them attacked Billy Porter were like the dress sucks I hate it it's an attack on me
1: like just real violent backlash because really they feel touched a nerve because they actually do are oh, bored with fashion is my theory yeah it's a thing i've noticed when i when i when i have known a man when there is a man i have known before and after his coming out of the closet almost without expe- <laughs> there are a couple of exceptions but like generally speaking it's like the moment they come out of the closet they suddenly start like Wildly experimenting with how they dress and how they present, and they get wild haircuts and they start wearing, you know, <laughs> nice tailored shorts and like beautiful colors. And it's so exciting, but it also makes me feel really sad for all that straight men who can never come out of the closet because are they just trapped in this performative masculinity forever, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it is, it's interesting that they feel so tied to this idea that being a man means you have to be boring <laughs> yeah yeah so the moral of the story is capitalism sucks mm-hmm. the patriarchy is bad for everyone the patriarchy is a prison for all of us and everyone should join the revolution in order to be allowed to wear nice blouses yeah. and never have to wear a tie again yeah
1: or if you do if you want to but it might as well be like magenta if or you, something like yeah. play around yeah have a time <laughs> yeah or uh, anyway so
0: yeah so that is why men's clothing got so boring and why it sucks now to be a man it always sucked to be a man i did think actually for a while i barely it really sucked at like 1790 there were definitely people standing there going like a God, I can't believe we all have to wear breeches. Yeah. and like, like, I just would do anything not to wear
1: breeches. I bet loads of, those, I, loads of those, you know, delightful brocade things were really scratchy and hot, you know? <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, I bet
0: they were so hot. Yeah. Some of them, like, enclosed, like, you can look at the exhibition because you could, like, the close-ups are amazing mm-hmm. and it's so beautiful, but also you just feel like you would be... So warm. So warm. <laughs> yeah, so that's why men's clothes got so boring. That's what the great male renunciation is. The great male renunciation as a thing, I think, doesn't really hold up as a theory <laughs> in the way that Flugel describes it. But as a long term social and cultural shift, it's a kind of indicator of social and cultural change over a long period of time and how different our world is to the world of the 17th it's like the pre seventeenth century. And how the like just on a cultural and psychological level and every way the the world looks different now to, yep. <laughs> to how it did when men could wear gold cloaks. Yeah. And shoes with enormous
1: points on well, them. Well, a few men could wear that while everyone else was in overalls out on the farm.
0: Yeah. Everybody else was yeah. Just kind of drudging about living with cows. <laughs> anyway, so Next time, episode 71, we are going to answer a question from Pierre Scholl, who has said, were there really children who have been raised by wolves? Yeah. I trust nobody but you to clear (laughs) up the weird anecdotes I come across. (laughs) Which is simultaneously a great compliment and a lot of pressure. (laughs) It really is. (laughs) But so, yeah, so we're going to be talking about feral children, which I had a real thing about when I was a teenager and was reading a lot of very, very odd books about paranormal phenomena.
1: <laughs> that sounds great I can't wait to talk about that so I can't wait um, you can find all our stuff at historysexy.com. you can find links to our social media and to our Kofi page where you can support us if that is a thing you would like to do and all our show notes and everything and ask us a question we, we have a little form questions you can contact us and yeah
0: everything everything is at historysexy.com. and until next time bye bye Thank you